Uber has intense data science workloads, and those data science workloads have always been intense, even from the early days. But in the early days of Uber, there was not that much data infrastructure that was built. Kevin Novak was one of the first people to work on the data science infrastructure of Uber, and he joins the show today to talk about a brief history of what he did at Uber and how he started the data science stack there, how he helped other people start the data science stack there. And there's some great stories about early Uber, including surge pricing. Kevin was apparently partially responsible for surge pricing. Our first book is coming soon. Move Fast is a book about how Facebook builds software. It comes out July 6th, and it's something we're pretty proud of. We've spent about two and a half years on this book, and it's been a great exploration of how one of the most successful companies in the world builds software. In the process of writing Move Fast, I was reinforced with regard to the idea that I want to build a software company. And I have a new idea that I'm starting to build. The difference between this company and the previous software companies that I've started is I need to let go of some of the responsibilities of software engineering daily. We're going to be starting to transition to having more voices on software engineering daily. And in the long run, I think this will be much better for the business because we'll have a deeper, more diverse voice about what the world of software entails. If you are interested in becoming a host, please email me, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. This is a paid opportunity, and it's also a great opportunity for learning and access and growing your personal brand. Speaking of personal brand... We are starting a YouTube channel as well. We'll start to air choice interviews that we've done in person at a studio. And these are high-quality videos that we're going to be uploading to YouTube. And you can subscribe to those videos at YouTube and find the Software Daily YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. I hope you check out Move Fast. And very soon, thanks for watching Software Daily. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is great. You were one of the first data scientists to work at Uber and grapple with the scale of that company. And I think of Uber and other ride-sharing firms as well, other logistics companies, as basically an unsolvable data engineering problem because the scale of geospatial information, customer information that is generated on the fly and needs to be munged and turned into other actionable data points is effectively infinite. And the optimizations that you could do are effectively infinite. So in such an environment, you have to figure out some platform strategy, some sustainable platform strategy for collecting the data, working with the data, and making it serviceable to the data scientists. So I'm most curious about the state of that platform when you joined and the direction it took as the company matured. Sure, absolutely. As you're probably aware, I joined mid-2011. I was their 21st employee, and I think there were seven engineers. I was like the seventh engineer. So I inherited basically nothing from the get-go. I mean, the what, what's actually very interesting about Uber is you're right that there is 
massive scale today. But if you think about it from a customer transactions point of view, like on a transaction volume, people are using Uber even if you're a power user, you know, order of single digit times per day. You know, it's like once to work, maybe once to lunch, once back, once home. So the actual speed of customer transaction data was pretty slow. In fact, that you could basically use like an off-the-shelf MySQL cluster for a long time, which is basically what we were able to do to handle transactional records. And all the analytics you're doing on predicting churn and predicting re-engagement, these types of things, could be built on top of a MySQL stack. And so for a long time, just because we were constrained by data infrastructure, that was where a lot of the effort got spent on the data side of things. The obvious exception to that is the geospatial information that you get from cars, right? So we would have telemetry coming off these cars, you know, at one hertz a second, location, basically everything an iPhone could share with us on speed, accelerometer, all of that was being shared with Uber. And so most of our data scaling constraints came from the geospatial, and I guess you'd call them geotemporal logs coming off of these cars. And for a long time, we didn't really know what to do with it. We had we stumbled on sort of PubSub early on, even before it really caught on with you know the confluence of the world and all of that. And literally, our geospatial information system was, it comes in from the cars, a simple basically handler to process that information, like a CDN type system, just to basically receive from the cars published to a Kafka stream that got sent to a flat file and we just spooled these geos logs and did nothing with them honestly for the first several years but knowing they were going to be valuable by about maybe 2014 2015 we really felt like we developed enough engineering competency on the data infrastructure side to start tackling mapping and traffic and all of these sort of products we wanted to build on top of geospatial information that was where our first real data lakes got built. We started out with like your classic Hadoop system. We had a bunch of you know, friends from Cloudera who were getting us going. Realized pretty quickly we needed something a lot more custom. And that eventually took the form of us building projects like M3, which was our time series database. In a sense, they've gone off and kind of created their own company on top of that. But one of the big things for the analytics side of things is we stumbled on this sort of hex notation and you'd see it in a certain area, we even surfaced this in the driver app, where we realized you could basically cover the world in hexagons that were roughly the size of a city block and you could tessellate the entire globe if you put five big pentagon polygons somewhere on the planet. And we kept playing with it and we were able to get four of those five pentagons over oceans and the fifth one is over the western sahara desert so like parts of like uber morocco might if we ever get to that part of the world or uber western sahara might have some quirky analytics at some point but the hexagons are nice one it basically removes a lot of the geospatial computation because hexagons you can just sort of have a rank order radius of you know, you are you can say there is data within the hexagon of interest there is the ring of hexagons surrounding it, the ring of hexagons surrounding that. And so it was actually a lot more computationally simple to think of the world rather than as continuous GPS points as just hexagons and hexagon rings around the hexagon of interest. 
Does that make sense? It does. And I've seen presentations at conferences where Uber uses this hexagon thing, hexagon-like yeah. format to display information to the audience. Yeah. Geospatial data is really tricky to work with at scale. There was a whole era of Uber. I mentioned we started with MySQL was sort of our business database layout technology of choice. And we pivoted to Postgres. We did a live cutover from MySQL to Postgres. And our DevOps team did some phenomenal things of basically making it so we could run this whole thing live. There was basically no downtime. and we But we moved to Postgres because of the PostGIS and geospatial functionality, querying functionality that Postgres offered. Ironically, it was kind of funny. We That lasted, I would say, four to six quarters, somewhere in there. And we actually ended up moving back because we hit a point where Postgres just wouldn't scale for us. And kind of through a friend of a friend, like I got connected to these guys who were consultants who were Postgres core code base committers. And they made a whole career of a kind of fine tuning and performance tuning Postgres clusters. And so, you know, they came into the session with us. We started to have them on retainer. They were basically extended members of the team and they were running out of ideas. So we tried literally everything, including talking to the guys who wrote it to scale up Postgres. And at some point we just realized this wasn't the right technology for us, which is when we moved back to a much more classic sort of MySQL Hadoop and eventually that evolved to HBase. And I'm actually not sure what they're using now, but a much more sort of classic MySQL backstack and then tried to solve the geospatial querying problem with the sort of hexagon tessellation structure instead. So the choice of database and data infrastructure, you just gave one example of how a conventional choice basically broke at scale. (laughs) Sure. What were some other ways where off-the-shelf solutions were breaking and you had to recreate your infrastructure strategy? Yeah, I will say that Uber philosophically, and I think this might have come right from the top, right from Travis's sort of approach, tended to buy us to build over buy. We bought very few technologies off the shelf. One of the most sort of obvious and big ones where we had this external dependency was on Google Maps. And, you know, the Google contract was renegotiated every 12 or 18 months, it seemed like. My data guys were kind of tangentially involved, you know, kind of supplying the quantitative figures to all of that. And eventually we realized that paying Google, you know, order of tens of cents every time a Google map popped up was a strategic dependency we didn't want to take on. And that began the, so it was kind of a, we don't want to buy this anymore. The classic build versus buy manifested itself in us going out and buying our own mapping product and developing an in-house mapping solution that I think was initially, let's just figure out a way to it attack marginal cost, but also created some really interesting opportunities to do embedded traffic monitoring, vertical integration of things like the operations team knows that there's a parade going on or these roads are closed and you could develop a tool such that the ops team can like close a road and it cascades all the way down to the stack and the routing engine becomes aware of it and the drivers know not to go on it. That sort of deep vertical integration, I think, was a lot of what enabled our scalability and sort of 
operational leverage without having engineers in the loop trying to like submit pull requests to you know the the map graph, if you will. The whole build over buy decision, to my mind, this is a point of differentiation from Lyft. I think right, like didn't like Uber went more heavily into colos, building their own infra. Even having more of an open source presence, I think, like Lyft has definitely built up an open source presence of its own, but I feel like Uber w- went a little more aggressively into that direction. You had, you know, a much more active uh, engineering blog, much more active interface with the public engineering audience, I felt, from Uber. But the differentiation, like, it kind of had implications for how the company developed, differentiation cost structure, because Lyft is on AWS. Lyft, I believe, struck some long-range partnership with Google or with Alphabet around mapping, probably like feeding data that helps Waymo or something like that. So like much different economic strategy. Do you have any perspective on how, like what are the costs and benefits of that strategic decision or collection of decisions? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, so let me start by saying that I don't think it was always rational and I don't necessarily always agree with Uber's philosophy, but I I did think it made some kind of sense in that Travis, I would say from the beginning, was very much an entrepreneur that had a very clear understanding of what are the things that I am uniquely great at, what are the things that I find like uniquely aggravating, or what is my point of view on, on the types of experiences we need to avoid. And then how do I like do a really good job of propagating that into every decision the company makes? And one of the things I think Travis was an unqualified genius at was fundraising and selling. And so what we ended up with was a mindset of we could find top decile talent and we could find money on a sort of consistent basis to both pay for top of market talent, but pay for a lot of it. And so when we kind of came to these build versus buy attitudes, there's always, whenever you're doing build versus buy, and on the buy side of the equation, it's always some sort of fundamental trade-off, in my opinion, of, you know, we can substitute a bunch of development time and get a product, which is sort of, you bring something forward from the future to present day. That's the upside to all of this. The challenge is that the interfaces might be a little clunky, right? Or there's sort of something that which is cl- slightly imperfect or it doesn't quite scale the way we want to. There's always like, like a constraint which usually manifests itself in clunky flow or clunky scaling. And I think Travis from the beginning was like obsessed with the sort of magic experience and these clunky interfaces drove him nuts. I mean, the I had to build like surge screens, those little pop-ups that would happen. And, and he would be on me about loading times for this little like modal that, you know, everybody was just sort of clicking through anyway. But he was like obsessive about that kind of stuff. And so whenever we were buying tech, as soon as there was like a clunky interface or something that was, you know, 95% great, Travis would always say, look, like we have the money. Can we just go find the engineers and go build something which is you know, 98 or 99% great? So I, I think in some ways the build versus buy decision kind of grew out of his obsession on the product experience and a pragmatic viewpoint of, at the time, 
money was straightforward, recruiting top tier talent was straightforward, so why not at least take a stab at building? I think it definitely gave us the opportunity early on to start to do some, you know, uniquely great things. If we were the, you know, the first people to really build out some of these flows, these double binary flows, deeply integrated, you know, mobile A-B testing flows. And I think that enabled us to innovate in ways which other people struggled to replicate. The cons to it is that over time, all of these products require maintenance and support and continued iteration. And you start to have this large ongoing support cost manifested itself in both you know, engineering salary dollars, but also opportunity costs of what those engineers could be working on. Also, you know, the motivation challenges of hiring a bunch of people, promising them to keep building new and innovative stuff, and they're kind of working on version 17 of the same thing they've been working on. I think that all started to bog down a bit. And I think I haven't been with Uber since end of 2017. I think in the interim, they have unwound some of these, you know, build versus buy decisions and go back to buying. And I think that was probably smart. I actually think there's a lot of wisdom in, in build the things which are, you know, core to differentiating your product, but also recognize not everything needs to be built. And there's a, you know, there's a smart thing to be said about buying or even build and then buy kind of as the services or third-party product catches up to your company. But yeah, I think it's a nuanced decision. I agree with most of it, maybe 90% of it. And as far as an application of data science, the economics of the business has been thrilling to watch over time. But just from a from a human incentive point of view, you start with this like $5 per ride, highly subsidized thing, and you have been able to boil the frog over time, you know? <laughs> like, especially during and post-pandemic, the economics of, of Uber look just so appealing compared to how they used to in the very subsidized world. Now it's like, I will effectively pay taxi prices or premium on taxi prices to just get the Uber service. I know I'm not alone in that regard. Was there always a plan around this? Like in the data science around the economics of pricing, I'm not sure how heavily involved you were, but if, if you were involved, can you help me understand yep. the strategy for how to ratchet prices and how to maintain you know a healthy range of prices or how you approach that problem? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I was very involved with this as you know, I think we discussed prior to this. I did the first couple of years of dynamic pricing. I, uh, in a way, invented Surge. You're welcome to the world. But the it's an interesting problem, right? Even from when I joined, it, and I was kind of referred to Uber from a friend, and the tagline was kind of like, it's this like limo company with an app with big dreams. Like it was black cars only at the time. And I was sort of like, okay, like, you know, interesting, I'll go check it out. But even at 2011, there was kind of this idea of there's a transportation layer in every major city in America that doesn't work particularly well. And, you know, we kind of want to start with this limo service, but eventually have a point of view on all of it. And I think that that large vision is important. I mean, it obviously worked on the business side, but it, it helps kind of reframe the problem mathematically of 
Like, it's not just about getting town cars to people efficiently, but it's about fundamentally increasing the throughput of the transportation and automobile layer in every city, and public transit for that matter. And that starts with, okay, cars, rideshare runs really efficiently, but in the abstract, you realize it's kind of a problem of how do we just move stuff? right, in a cost and time efficient way. It's an optimization of like cubic footage within an automobile per time per hour on a dollar cost optimized basis. And I think dynamic pricing kind of came into it relatively early where what you figured out without pricing, we had this sort of era where you couldn't get Ubers on Friday and Saturday nights. And we tried everything to like onboard cars, you know, the operations teams did these like Herculean driver onboardings and you know, they'd onboard 50 drivers one week and then 150 the next week and 500 the next week. And we were still maxing out. And Travis started talking, we started riffing, we had like a standing Friday meeting about like, you know, we should like figure out a way to price Ubers fairly such that there's always an Uber available. Like that was one of the things we figured out really early on was key to a magic Uber experience was, you know, if you open the app and there are no cars, you get like sort of this viscerally negative reaction. So always have a car available. We track the, we call them zeros, the number of sessions where a user didn't see a car, there were zero cars available, was one of our like single biggest negative KPIs. That number had to be zero every week or we weren't doing our jobs. And pricing became a big part of that. What, what was interesting about it was raising prices. You know, we kind of had this system that I developed that was hokey and talk about in a sec, but raising prices did three things. One, it disincentivized demand that there were people who said, you know what, like I'm willing to walk, I'm willing to wait a couple minutes, like let's go have another round or you know, we'll order dessert and wait for Uber prices to come down. Secondly, it's incentivized supply in time and space, right? And there was this idea of, you know, we saw this most obviously in New York. If you are a driver who's sitting in a suburban in Brooklyn and you know it's Friday night and there is demand in Midtown or Downtown Manhattan, you're still looking at this and saying like, God, I got to like cross the Brooklyn Bridge. This is like a massive pain in the neck for a very uncertain reward. Eh, I'm not even going to bother. Like I'll just wait for the next Brooklyn ride kind of thing. And being able to raise prices spatially, right? Geospatial dynamic pricing was a way of kind of playing with the calculus on the risk reward of doing something like relocating across the city you know, incurring gas costs, incurring the headache of just fighting traffic to like go downtown. So it helped drivers move to places of higher demand or, or more importantly, underserved demand in the city. And it also helped them train their schedules to say, okay, I'm going to work later hours. I'm going to kind of shift my schedule from, from more downtime to more busy time just because the economics are better on that. And the third and kind of most subtle thing about it was it actually increased the throughput of our system. Right? And I think what was fascinating about it is 
what happens when Ubers get too busy in a marketplace, and I, I've done a couple talks on this, but when you, you hit a tipping point where cars become less dense, they have a lower spatial density, and ETAs go up, right? You've probably seen this in a really busy time. Your Uber is not three minutes away, it's like 15 or 20 minutes away. And if you request that car, your transaction takes longer in time, right? It takes the car now 15 minutes to get to you, plus like the 15 minutes from where you're going to where you want to get dropped off. Your transaction took 30 minutes. Whereas if you called during a slow time and the car was one minute away, it'd be one minute to get to you plus 15 minutes to go to your destination. Your transaction took 15, 16 minutes. So there's this sort of tricky second order effect that happens where in times of high demand, with demand outstrips supply, transactions take longer and the system is actually less capable of serving the transactions. So you end up with this sort of negative feedback loop, which causes Ubers to spike to 100% utilization. So by keeping the system out of that sort of negative feedback state, you actually end up doing, it was interesting, we were in this study and it was like for every 0.25x multiple increase in pricing, you had 25% higher per fare value, obviously, but you also had 71% higher revenue per hour because of the marginal increase in the throughput of the system by staying out of that destructive feedback state system loop. So pricing was sort of this, we were saying like pricing helps keep Ubers available. That was like one of the big talking points back then. It was actually literally about maximizing the number of trips per hour the fleet could serve because otherwise it, you end up in sort of this, the fleet could do roughly half as many trips between 90 and 100% utilization as between 80 and 90% utilization. So we had this whole system. You asked me sort of how we built it, what the focus was on. That was the single biggest mathematical insight is there is a tipping point in utilization where we start to get negative feedback signals. So you have this min-max problem if you wanna be as busy as possible without falling into negative feedback loop. And so we built, it's actually funny, the very first models were like literally univariate and it was like a PID loop where you would just sort of say, you know, tipping utilization, measured utilization, if measured utilization, you know, is within 10% of tipping utilization, raise prices, like step up, right? And you would have kind of a scorecard of how many steps, you know, with these sort of integer chunks. First it was 0.25x, then it was, you know, a tenth of a 0.1x. So like every five minutes, they would like run this calculation, dial prices up or down, and the operations teams could do these basically set guardrails. We built this whole internal tool. Again, we're big on automated internal tools where you could say, I want to vary prices dynamically from a floor to a ceiling. It was usually like 1x to 2 or 3x. And they could change a little bit of sort of, I want to be really sensitive to like supply shocks or demand shocks. You have the, how do you weight the derivative term? They had a couple, it was like sort of three or four like options on the control panel, click a button and then the system would take over and just vary prices up and down. And it worked surprisingly well. I mean, for a model as simple as like measure utilization, feed it through like an algebraic expression, that worked for years, honestly, for the first 18 months where we were busy scaling this out to every city and doing all these different product lines. 
Eventually, you get a much more sophisticated approach. The people I think who have published the most research on this are actually DD, where you know, the most sophisticated approaches is you treat this as a, you basically calculate the expected value of every driver, rider, pair. Say a bunch of requests come in, they sit there for 15 or 20 seconds. I think it's usually 15. You have a bunch of drivers who become available. You compute the possible permutations of every driver-client pairing and find the configuration which maximizes net present value and net future value, both of which are sort of model constraints. Do you have the time to do that? Like the time it takes for the rider to like, because you're describing stable matching basically, right? Right, exactly. What's interesting is there's actually a floor. There's such a thing as too convenient in the rideshare space where we discovered the probability of cancellation goes up from about 90 seconds to 30 seconds. Like you sort of have this, we got a bunch of these rides. So you, you see obviously a probability of cancellation goes up as ETAs go up. You're like, oh, screw it. The Uber's 15 minutes away, never mind. So you have this sort of falling probability to about 90 seconds and then it spikes again right and what we've hypothesized we called a bunch of people actually verified this in user research is it's like oh my god the uber's here like i have to put my shoes on i wasn't ready to go like i was expecting you know, three to five minutes so it has to be fast right it has to be in fact our real-time systems our dispatching systems have performance constraints i think they had to execute stable matching and i think it was something like you know, 750 milliseconds or something like that. But you do have a little bit of time. You can basically batch people for five or 10 seconds, run a stable matching algorithm in about a second, and actually give them, you know, the car in 15 or 20 seconds. And users don't seem to mind. In fact, they kind of like it. There's a little bit of like intentional lag. Sometimes they think it's mobile phone lag. Sometimes it's just sort of convenient before you get the car sent to you. I think sometimes you can do stable matching as straightforward as just by integer number of requests and you just sort of say, okay, like every 10 requests we're going to dispatch. We've experimented with that. I don't quite know where the, the status of the dispatching algorithm is. Again, my intel's a little stale. But early on, we honestly just ran it as like univariate PID and then you know, started to do a little bit of waiting function with sort of geospatial adjacencies between these different neighborhoods we priced. Well, the big superpower to them is that they are autonomous. The big drawback to them is that they are autonomous. And so we consistently got tripped up famously early on, and I think we've, we've since kind of recovered a bit of raising prices or sort of dynamically pricing in circumstances where your price optimization was not the highest order bit. You know, the most famous examples were like the Navy Yard shooting in Boston, or there was a, you know, a cafe. There was like a mass casualty event in Sydney, I remember at one point. And the system was responding, the model itself was responding in a way which makes economically rational sense, which is a bunch of people want to leave this area, there, you know, the price of an Uber should go up, but it kind of like sidesteps common sense, human decency and ethics, and, and your price optimization is not the highest order bit for the company at that point. So we always got tripped up with this kind of fundamentally reactive nature of how our models were built. 
And I think you can sort of shorten that feedback loop to the, you know, turn it off in 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. But I don't quite know how you get to proactive sort of root cause analysis of what is causing the pricing driving, like the price spiking, if that makes sense. Okay, let's shift the conversation a bit, given that you're now an investor. And we've been talking mostly at a pretty high level relative to the data infrastructure problems that the data engineers, burgeoning data engineering ecosystem was being tackled at Uber while you were there. But, you know, you you saw when you were at Uber, the rise of a lot of internal technologies that have now been productized, whether we're talking about M3, which is now Chronosphere, or the geospatial technology, which got productized as unfolded, the data lake middleware that is at least getting turned into open source projects. And I'd love to know, like, what are some of the broader product areas that you see opportunities for companies to be built in? As far as I'm concerned, after crypto, data engineering is basically the coolest space to be building in. It's, 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 the, most, <laughs> it's the most problem-rich Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I think data engineering is a really great space to be investing in. And I'd love to hear about the companies and the problems, the spaces, the subspaces within data engineering that you're most excited about. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I think we built at Uber or in the beginning stages of building it that I haven't really seen productized yet. And I think you know, there have obviously, it's been nice for me as an investor with a bunch of the old Uber data gang starting companies, including like the Michelangelo guys with Tecton and a couple other things. One interesting part that we were trying to struggle with was sort of how do you balance data security and data access and sort of the need for creativity and innovation. The system we tried to build at Uber was a principle of basically everybody could theoretically have access to every piece of information at the company but you kind of have a spectrum of friction, which is ideally correlated well with the sort of riskiness or anomalous behavior. Like how weird is this request? You know, given everything we know about you and your job title and your job family. I'd really like to see somebody explore that idea in a product around data security and data access. It's a little kind of on the edge of data engineering and I'm aware of that. But the idea being like if you're a driver operations manager in Phoenix and you're accessing client records in Boston, that's very weird. Like you have very little business reason for doing so. Somebody should be made aware of this. Or you should have something where you say like, please explain why you're doing this. Submit a request for approval. Somebody has to authorize it. But we also had lots of very creative people who would kind of go adjacent to their job title or, or sort of exploring something else. And sometimes anomalous data access patterns were a great way for us to do internal tooling and project research. And just sort of saying like, hey, you're, you know, you're pulling a bunch of different like driver ticket information. Why are we doing this? And you know, they're like trying to create the ability to think through what would like a insurance or risk product look like if we wanted to build it internally like some of our best ideas just came from people you know kind of riffing on tools and but you're talking about kind of like a porous zero trust detection service for self-serve data engineering 
Right, and I think the core piece of it is a the ability to build a data access risk model that has correlations to basically like data access patterns and how, given this pattern in the context of all of the rest of your patterns, how weird is this, right? Like if you could build that middleware, I think they're interesting products. All right, so if somebody in the audience wants to build this, you have two co-investors <laughs> right right now. I would, that's, a, that's a cool Perfect. idea. I would totally invest in that. Yeah, so that's certainly one. The other stuff I've sort of seen in this space, and it still blows my mind that somebody hasn't solved this yet, is just like a really useful query runner. We had this product inside Uber called Query Builder, and it was like it was literally just a text box, but you had like templated queries. It was like deeply integrated into a data book. It had unique data runs. Like, and what was so great about it is it basically intermediated like the SQL query box. You know, like if you were on a laptop and you just like fired up MySQL from the prompt, you, you, you could basically do whatever you wanted with the company's data. And you had that ability to do this for power users, but it was this product which enabled basically everybody at the company who knew a little bit of SQL. You give them like a six week SQL bootcamp that they could do asynchronously. And with that in Query Builder, they had basically access to all of the company's data technologies. It kind of blows my mind that there isn't a product like that that is not standalone, right? Like Looker does this a little bit, but it's kind of within like the Looker ecosystem. Metabase is probably the closest I've seen to doing this. I just really wish we could build like a really simple standalone query runner. I don't know if it's a billion dollar company, but it boggles my mind that literally nothing exists like this. It's not bolted into somebody else's sort of bloatware product, in my opinion. Okay, so you've kind of given some request for startup sort of thing. What about stuff you are actually seeing in the market, you know, whether it's like reverse ETL or data lake middleware or you know something something like that like <laughs> sure what are the subcategories in data engineering that you think are exciting yeah so i think there's i'm going to see a, a whole ecosystem of tooling kind of built around the concepts of data democratization behind products like dbt that i think are pretty interesting especially in that gap from I feel like right now the state of data pipelining is you have this sort of infinite scale sort of data lake end of the spectrum. You have your databases at the sort of business or application layer. The pipelining is becoming increasingly straightforward. You know, like with DBT, it's basically if you know SQL and like a little bit of light scripting coding, which describes a much larger population of data professionals than some of the prior vintages of technology. So if you know that, you can basically build a data pipeline and you're unblocked. But as soon as it gets to the application layer database, there's like this massive context switch into your dashboarding tool of choice or your last mile tool of choice. And I'm seeing a lot of companies and I think DBT is very smart about this, that they're starting to build APIs such that you can basically access your interface or access your DAG, rather, through a machine interface. A lot of DBT-adjacent tools, which I think is really powerful. There's one 
or I haven't done the investment yet, but just to kind of tease it, where you could basically build dashboards totally customized using DBT-like language. There's a company called Snapdata, which is doing something similar where you could basically do like conceptual business integrations of like, I want Stripe consumer data pipelined all the way to Looker through a DBT graph and they kind of give you like a template. Those kind of things of like, D start with DBT as a concept and then build like finished solutions or adjacent products I think are really compelling. I think the other thing going in a totally different direction because I my last big thing at Uber was working on Uber Freight, which was part of Uber ATG, which meant I hung out with a lot of the autonomous car guys and a lot of people working on CV and visual inference is this serverless high performance GPU compute and really starting to I think GPUs are sort of, everyone's figured out like, oh yes, this is a good idea, and, and the ecosystem of products at the sort of hardcore data infrastructure and data engineering level is kind of coming along. But I'm really eager to see what happens if you can basically enable any data analyst or any data scientist to like safely and responsibly run any job they want on your GPU cluster without the sort of data engineering glue to kind of get from idea to infrastructure. Anything around your know, serverless GPU I think is really compelling right now. Frankly I just think it's an, it's still too hard and there are a bunch of underappreciated opportunities in this space. You see autonomous vehicles and trucks, absolutely. Retail sort of coming along. You've got you know, the standards in the Amazon, standard cognitions in the Amazon goes of the world. But I still think images and videos are an underappreciated, like they are undervalued for the amount of data that they can contain. And I think part of that is just figuring out ways to extract that information is basically a visual inference problem that is not really well supported by current infrastructure tooling. Well said. So the solution there to like basically high dimensional data formats that are refined over time with additional metadata or produce downstream data. So you talk about images or videos, you know, you have images, you have a bunch of images in a, in some sort of database or in some sort of like blob storage and you want to do all kinds of refinements on that. You, same goes for video. There just is not good best practices for managing that kind of data, you know, especially as it makes its way through data pipelines. And there's lots of ad hoc infrastructure that gets built around those kinds of workflows, right? That's right. I think the whole stack is a little bit underdeveloped, to be honest. And it's some of it's blob storage, some of it's sort of query layer, some of it's kind of getting it last mile to like, what is the business problem you're solving? But it kind of boggles my mind that I can't just do like, select star from Netflix underscore videos where video contains concept Halle Berry and get like a SQL-like response, right? That that kind of inference and ability to search and organize and access information, I don't think it really exists to that degree of simplicity. Like obviously there are ways you could get at kind of I'm hinting at, but at the like level of like the data scientist who may or may not be trusted with like deploy privileges, sort of that level of technical sophistication. That is a pretty heavy lift right now. And I think that there are massive 
industries. I mean, I spent a bunch of time in LA working in entertainment and gaming where because their data formats are inherently visual, it's inherently, you know, not unstructured data are kind of being left by the wayside on some of these best practices and, and sort of all of the opportunities unlocked in things like fintech and enterprise and e-commerce because the, the information is fundamentally more structured. I think getting better at unstructured data kind of as a whole, and I think it starts at the infrastructure. My hypothesis is it starts at infrastructure and sort of GPU democratization is a massive opportunity. Cool. Well, we're about at the end of our time. You're obviously doing investing right now, but I'd like to close on the question of if you had to build a infrastructure company today, or I guess any kind of company, what company would you build today? Oh, good question. So on the fun side of things, I invest predominantly at formation, pre-seed, and seed. So I spend my whole day talking to founders about the company they're starting. And sometimes, you know, the idea doesn't work. And so I actually spend a lot of time thinking about this. The company I'd probably be starting right now would be tackling or running right at the problem of data sharing and data movement between companies that I think lots of companies out there are kind of like aware data is important. It has value. It, it, the analysis you build on it have intrinsically have value. But it's always sort of constrained as a, what can we do within these four walls? I think data sharing outside of companies, and I say sharing in the most vague sense, right? This could also be data selling, is a very risky proposition, right? You have a very capped upside. Sometimes it's big, but it is finite of how much money can I get for this data or how much reputational gain can I get for it? And a pretty significant downside, you know, if you screw up data sharing, you know, you share the wrong info and there's PII or, or you know, or you share a data set that, that gets replicated infinitely and is immediately commoditized, you're basically going to get fired and your company could be sued and there's a you know, pretty catastrophic downside problem. So I think lots of folks, and I, and I say this both generally, but also personally, both in my time at Uber, you know, I was chief data officer at Talos or the same mindset. I always looked at this and was kind of like, eh, like there's probably something here, but I'm really not going to like stake my career on the choice of sharing this, you know, traffic information with somebody. Like it just feels the risk reward doesn't make sense. So if I were to start a company, it would be trying to figure out how to shift the risk reward around data sharing. I think that the some of that is security. I think it starts kind of with companies that have data and want to push it. If you can figure out a way to make them feel safe and confident in their ability to share information, good things are going to happen. There's way too much information siloed inside of these companies and a lot of economic value. I mean, I know for a fact, you know, Uber has a better road network and a better understanding of what the best performing bus stops and best performing rail stops are than any municipal rail or bus authority we've worked with in any city on the planet. And some of it is, that's not, you know, critiquing them. I just think it's an unfair comparison, right? We have the data of like literally hundreds, if not thousands of cities at this point. Like, of course, we're going to be able to figure out 
better signal than somebody who's just looking at sort of their own sort of slice of the planet. Have you looked at that company? I think it's called Vanta or it's a ex Coinbase ex AWS guy. Tim Wagner, he he was like the head of serverless at AWS. Then he went to Coinbase for a while. I think he was like director of engineering there. But he's trying to do like enterprise blockchain done right, basically like data sharing done right. Uh-huh. Is that the solution? Is that what we're looking for? I think there's a security component to it. There's a company called Diahooks that I saw came out. They were in like the last YC badge. And I thought it was really clever because they were tackling this from, a, you know, how do we kind of, standardize and simplify the webhook creation process. Like if you want to, you know, communicate information via webhooks, we're just basically going to like solve this entire thing. And your engineers just, the pitch is like, it's like two lines of code and then you can do webhooks. I think there's partially that too, of just sort of how do you decrease the amount of engineering friction? What's interesting I found in data licensing, data sharing, is there's a lot of stakeholders involved, right? You have the engineers who are actually kind of punching the pipeline out, but you've also got the biz dev and sort of business stakeholders who are brokering the deal. You've got legal risk and security who are making sure that we're not giving away the crown jewels. Sometimes that's risk and audit. Sometimes that is, you know, literally obfuscating this information or contemplating doing something like a synthetic data transfer. There's a lot of stakeholders in this. Part of why I think it hasn't been easily solved. And so when you are a company and you say, all right, I've got to get like four business divisions together to go do something, to push data onto a marketplace where the return value on it is pretty unknown, right? Very rarely do you have a customer who's going to like quote a price and wait for you to like, you know, get your life together to do all of that. I just think it's a bunch of you know, avenues that never get explored. So my hypothesis is, is that if you can simplify that process, you start a flywheel of, you know, a couple more companies are more interested in, that kind of pushes a couple companies kind of over the line to like, yeah, let's do this, which drives more demand, which validates the marketplace hypothesis, which engages more people. There's something there of just, if you could figure out what is the right series of features and what is the right series of scope. And I think you're right. There are Vint as part of it, but not all of it you could unlock something big. That's what I'd spend the next five years of my life on if I wasn't building and, and investing in founders who were doing stuff like that. All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and thanks for coming on the show and sharing your experiences. Of course. Happy to share. Thanks for having me.